Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, who is eternal. Michael, how have you been? I'm very well, Gary, thanks. Just enjoying the rain as it keeps coming down. But... Now, there is something I wanted to talk about quickly before we uh, we started into our show today. Michael, did you know that there are some people who don't consider Gripped to be a newspaper? No, Gary, surely not. Not in... Some people. Some people think that we don't reach the standard to be referred to as an online newspaper. But, Michael, a rebuttal has come that I think these people will have to look at and say, well, you know, we can't disagree with these people. So the other day I, I helped set up an article in Gript where we had one of the Taiwanese ministers write about their experience with the WHO and COVID-19 and basically make the point that they had performed exceptionally well and maybe it would be a good thing if the WHO recognised them so they could use the WHO and the UN to tell people how they had done so well so that other people might do well. Yes. Now that pissed off the Chinese. So we there was an article about grip in uh, one of the Hong Kong papers. So I saw this and I thought, well, why would a Hong Kong paper be writing about us just because we're writing about Taiwan? So I went and I asked some people who would have a familiarity with the shall we say, internal structure of the Chinese departments. And they informed me that the newspaper in question was in fact owned by uh, what's called the OCAO, which is the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office of the State Council, which is a department of the, the PRC government. So, the Chinese government, by extension, thinks that Gript is a newspaper. Because they referred to Gript as an online newspaper? They did. They then said it wasn't the first time we'd help publish Taiwanese lies and that our readers had laughed at the Taiwanese through their teeth. <laughs> through their teeth. Through their teeth. Sorry, that's good. I like that. <laughs> okay. But still, it's nice to know that we're recognised by the Chinese government. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, considering how many of the Irish media platforms have taken money from the Chinese state for advertising... Um, I don't see them saying the Chinese are wrong about anything. Well, you know, they used to say 50 million Frenchmen can't be wrong. Well, by extension, 1.3 billion Chinese people surely can't be wrong. Was that before or after the Vichy government? Uh, I think that was before. Yeah, that, that would probably put an end to that one. I think that was a, I think it was a First World War thing. Yeah, yeah. Kind of hard after that. People make mistakes, Gary. We have to just accept it. They said sorry and they moved on. They can't, They had to go all after us. You know, this is the country that went from the revolution. We talked about it before. They had the revolution, but then they had then they had Napoleon. They had Vichy, then they had de Gaulle. It's ups and downs. It's, it swings and roundabouts. So the, uh, the controversy, although I don't know who finds this controversial, I don't know who's angered by this, and I don't know who cares, frankly, at this point. Gulfgate oh, has claimed yeah. Phil Hogan. The king is dead, long live the king. Now they're gearing up for Seamus Wolfe to Supreme Court judge. I, Michael, I've, I have had, like, I, I'm interested in politics. Very interested in politics. And people will, like, people I know will often come to me for, to ask me questions about politics. People who aren't involved in politics themselves anyway and are just curious about what's happening. Yeah. And when this dinner thing happened, a fair few people did come to me and go, like, what, what was that about? And most of them expressed a degree of unhappiness with the fact that it happened, but didn't really seem to have thought about it. Yeah. And then I explained, they went, oh, okay, fair enough, and they were unhappy or they were happy or whatever. But since that point, 
no one has mentioned it to me. And I'm just kind of curious, who cares? Like, who actually cares about this golf thing to the extent that they want to bring down a Supreme Court judge? Now, I hear some people saying that a Supreme Court judge should never have gone to a function like that, where there were lobbyists and there were politicians, and that that undermines the independence of the Supreme Court. To which I would say, examine how judges in Ireland, Supreme Court judges, are appointed, and who those people have tended to be historically. I think I think we're way past the point where a dinner is the disqualifying thing. Also, to be fair, it was a it was a public affair. I mean, it, it, there was no attempt, and they may regret that now, but there was no attempt to make it a, a, a subterfuge. There was no subterfuge. There was no hiding it. It wasn't done underground secretly. People went. Everybody knew pretty quickly who had gone. I, 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 I'm with you on this. I know that there are people who are annoyed and angry by it, and particularly by this notion that civil servants, for example, attended this that people connected or formally connected with media connect went to this. But it's a small country. If we don't trust people to play around a golf and have dinner with each other on the basis that that will lead to corruption, well, then, you know, I think we really might as well throw your hat at it anyway. Do they think that if people are acting in bad faith and have nefarious intent that they're not capable of having secret dinners in Dublin or going through the back door into the dinner parties in D4 or picking up the telephone, Gary, and talking to each other when nobody can see. I don't, I, 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 did, I don't get that. I don't, no, as regards why they're going after, listen, the Hogan thing, I think partly it was a sense, can, can Phil, can someone like Phil Hogan, whose neck is, was regarded as being made of that kind of brass that they used to make, uh, idols out of in Lebanon 2,000 years ago. He was, could he be brought down? Would it be? There was a certain amount of fun speculation. Who knows? There may be a bunch of journalists who think, would it, would it be fun to take out a Supreme Court judge? It's never been done before. But even the journalists don't seem particularly motivated by this. I mean, they're covering it, but they're not. Like, they don't seem to be braying for blood. Like, there's no, there's no feeling of energy behind this thing. No, not... I mean, there might yet be energy at some There point. may be. Maybe if somebody can get enough steam up on Twitter, journalists will look at Twitter and say, oh, look, there's lots of noise on there, so people must feel very agitated. But I, I, I was giving the example. A friend of mine retweeted a tweet from a, a, a solicitor who said that it was outrageous and it, the, the judge doing this had eroded the central pillar of our democracy, which is the independence of the judiciary, and he must do the right thing. And... Oh, my friend said, oh, yeah, that's a good point, you should agree. And I said to him, listen, if you can find me four, inverted commas, ordinary people who give a flying fuck about this, I will buy you dinner. Um, there may be out there. But after Caleri resigned, it seemed to me that the, the, the wider sting had got out of this. There are, I'm sure, people who are. There must be. I mean, I'm told... I, I've asked people, you know, what do you think? Are there lots of people angry about this? And the people have asked us, well, we're not. But there are people who are really, really pissed off. So there must be. Whether or not there's enough energy to bring it in to a sec another week, we'll see. The Sunday papers will tell us a certain amount about to what extent there's uh, uh, 
something left in this story. Ultimately, the do I can't see that the doll is going to go through the process of trying to impeach the man. Other, the only other vehicle is if enough noise is generated for him to feel that his position has become such that it's actually starting to damage his position and the and the court. I'm told that the man is he's a very nice man, a very honourable man, takes his role very seriously. So maybe if he felt that there was enough noise and mud flying around the place that it was actually damaging the court that he he, he would step down. I don't know. But that's the only the only effective way. It's, it'll be him. It'll be his decision. You know those storms you know, when hurricanes are out at sea and they either pick up energy or they lose it and there's really no way to know until it happens? I think it's a bit like that at the moment. My sense is that this particular hurricane is losing energy, but who knows? It may kick one direction. Something may give it a boost and it's suddenly it'll be back roaring into the press. I mean, I, I, I do know this as someone who has said repeatedly that there should be more resignations in Irish politics, that there should be a greater level of accountability for mistakes. Mm -hmm. It does feel odd to me to now be the person going, but like reel it back a bit, lads. I mean, there should be accountability for mistakes of proportion to the mistake well, exactly. involving the correct people. Exactly. That's, that's the question, I think. It's a question of proportionality, isn't it? Like if you oversee the building of a children's hospital, which goes up 300% and becomes like the fifth most expensive building in human history. Yeah, you should resign. If you go to a golf dinner breaking no laws, maybe breaking a regulation that came in the day before? Like, I'm sorry, but I just... I don't care. Mostly because I also expect a lot of Irish people have broken these regulations as well. I haven't. Yeah, I'm sure they, I'm sure they have. I, I don't... I don't think I have. No, you see, I, I, you know what, Gary? I, I'd have to think about that. I mean, and I'd have to look at the dates and where. But I, I, I don't think I have. But I'm sure many people have. I thought just before we move on, one slightly interesting, curious thing is the way that this is being reported in Europe. Um, I know I'm looking at some reports in Germany, some politicians, in Germany, kind of puzzled. Do they think that the reaction? They thought that the whole thing was a bit of an overreaction, a bit hysterical, you know, that you're allowed to make a mistake. This wasn't really, a, this was not a resigning offence, it was not a sacking offence. There was a curious one in, in sorry, in, in, in the French papers, where they made two points which haven't come up here at all. First of all, this was the act of the government. They asked Phil to consider his position. Then they came back and said that they had no confidence. So they had they made a deliberate choice. Martin made a deliberate choice to ramp this up. And he effectively put tremendous pressure at that stage on the commission. When his national government said he'd no pre he had no confidence, they had no confidence in the man. That put a lot and they're saying that they they were very unhappy with this because two things. First of all, as a commissioner he was not an, a representative of Ireland and he should be independent of pressure from home. And the commission had essentially given in to a national government. And secondly, it appears that the, gov the Irish government had also asked that the position of trade commissioner, which is one of the big jobs in the commission, should be reserved so that the next appointee will in fact be Irish rather than be handed on to someone already in the commission. And 
both the French and also when the Italian papers reported this, that was it really a sensible idea that somebody who would be so closely involved in the negotiations about trade and in Brexit just now as we're about to enter probably into the Brexit negotiations, that somebody who is going to have to start from zero with no background and no experience in it, it's going to be thrown in to do this job, that this isn't really maybe the best thing for Europe. I would also, I'd be interested to hear the views of MEPs on this, because if there's anyone else in the EU who's likely to have pretty much done what Phil Hogan did, I mean, rapidly move around, get testing, if that testing came back negative, break the quarantine. It's going to be the MEPs. So I would be, I think, I'd be very curious to see if the MEPs are all that happy with this, because if people start looking into any of their transport uh, records... I'd be curious to see how many could make it through this. But that that was the reason why I thought that ultimately he might get away with it. It was because MEPs certainly, but also the the rest of the commission. These people, I mean, the nature of their lives, the nature of their job is travel. If it's not just from Brussels to Strasbourg, and Strasbourg to Brussels to Frankfurt to wherever, how many of the commission are going to have perfect records regarding the COVID regulations in every country they have been in? Uh, and if some enterprising young journalist in Latvia or in France or in Portugal decides to have a look, are we going to see a whole... Well, I suspect in other countries they'll just say, yeah, well, I broke it, but you're sorry about that. But maybe not. Maybe we... Maybe... Cause this is... One of, the, one of the... I think it was the French... Or the, the Corriere de la Serie made the point that... The only other time that this has effectively happened, other than the mass resignation of the, I think it was the Barossa Commission, was uh, a, a commissioner who was involved in, a, there was a suspicion that there had been, a, or the, there was the appearance that there may have been undue influence from an outside commercial body, and because of that the person had to resign. Uh, but for something like this, and when the, the French, the Liberation made the point, was there were no criminal sanctions, there were no laws broken in this case. So for this resignation to be effectuated as a result of direct pressure from the government, they didn't seem to think this was really a, a very good move from the point of the Commission. It's created a precedent that they may come to regret. You were saying there about the, the Germans saying that this reaction seemed to them a bit hysterical. But it was weird in that it was a hysterical reaction in which I saw very few people actually being hysterical. Yeah. The reaction uh, seemed to be, the, but, but no one seemed to actually be causing it. I mean, I, I was going through social media on the days, and social media is not reality. No. But even on social media, people were struggling to, to, to actually care. Now, somewhere, but not enough to, to justify the level of concern people seem to have. And now people are also going after Brian Hayes, who is not a politician and is not a judge, and is purely, well, he's a, you know, he's a lobbyist, effectively. Well, oh, it has also been reported, we'll see how that develops, that Michal Martin has confessed that while staying in his holiday home in Court McSherry, lovely, lovely place to have a holiday home, he mm. did get. He did drive back to his house in Cork to collect clothes and go back to Court McJerry. Have you ever heard the story of uh, his holiday home, Michael, and uh, the developers who built it and 
some issues with the loan for the property and how it was cancelled a couple of days after a certain... Oh, no, it's all very complicated. I'm sure people aren't interested. No, that's not the kind of thing people would be interested in. No, but... and I mean, Finifal has been absolutely scrupulous historically in its links to developers. In, absolutely, and I think we should be clear and on the record about that. Absolutely. We would neither want to say anything nor imply anything. Listen, I throw out... Here's a theory for you. We heard Simon Donnelly speaking to the Dáil Committee on COVID, where he got a bit of a grilling from Mr McNamara, who I think we like. Uh, who, and he said that we were on a tipping point and we were very close to possibly going to another national lockdown. Now, if this is the kind of, line, the, shall we say, the rhetoric, if we want to be unkind a little, about that the government is using about the, the pandemic at the moment, Maybe they, maybe the energy that was coming about this was actually coming from Kildare Street, rather than anywhere else. That they had to make this a big deal because they have to make because they're setting us up to understand that you know this is still a very big deal and we are still in a very precarious position and your know, lockdowns may happen and or, it, it, it would be very hard to let them all off and then two weeks later say oh by the way lads we're going to go back into national lockdown or i mean if we want to think of it as a kildare street thing so cleary falls on his sword he does the honorable thing goes immediately yeah hogan is a finnegale appointee yeah maybe maybe and i've no reason to suspect this i'm just throwing it out i'm spitballing Maybe there was a feeling among some in Finnefall that it would do no harm to, you know, make a show of strength and give the government a win by giving the people something and taking Hogan's head. Yeah, I could see that. Which seems not a terribly good idea, to be honest. I could see that in the sense that maybe there might have been people who had a personal animus against Phil and and just taking his head, his specific head. But as a, as regards the thing about Finnegan, I, I I don't I don't see it because w- rather than a show of strength, I think there's been rather a show of weakness. I don't know if if you all the names that we're hearing about people to replace them on the commission are all Finnegalers. We're hearing about uh, Pascal O'Donoghue. We're hearing about Simon Coveney. We're hearing about Mairead McGuinness. It's not, there's no, there are no Fianna Fáil names coming forward to be put on the commission. So, which seems to me is, if anything, it's a show, a show of weakness on behalf of Fianna Fáil. And kind of, so the idea that it was Fianna Fáil flexing their muscles, I, I, I don't see it. But anyway, it is what it is. I don't know, I just, I struggle to see what the point of it was and why the government would come out and kind of, express their dissatisfaction, then back off, then come out again, and then finally just say we've lost confidence in him. Which, again, is not something they needed to have in the first place. No, no, they, I mean, they, they chose, that was a choice, they chose to ramp it up, and they put uh, Ursula uh, in, a, in a very tricky position, really, once they'd done that. She was a bit pissed off, with probably with her fill after they'd come out and made this statement saying how scrupulous he had been, and then it turns out that he had gone on a tour of the country. Now, Phil, of course, is a, that he he was scrupulous. He'd been tested. He'd done this. He'd done that. There were some minor infractions, but basically, he'd been a good chap. And you know, maybe he had been. But it is he. But he's gone, and uh, somebody's going to get a nice job. Will it cause a by-election? 
and that's one thing I've noted that they'd be desperate if they can at all they'd like to try and avoid I mean if if the EU is unhappy with this I hope they ask for Pascal <laughs> yeah yeah, Sinn Féin, I'm sure, would agree with you on that, Gary. Mm, get them out of the country. So, Michael, we have America, Italy, Australia. Spin the wheel. Where do you want to go? Uh, well, God wish, because be, we, we won't be there for very long. There's just a story I just wanted to bring to the attention of uh, our listeners, because they won't hear about it anywhere else, I suppose. There was a judgment made uh, today in the Court of Ministers in Rome, um, which goes, it goes back to 2019. In October 2019, a criminal case was opened in the, in the, prosecutor, the by the prosecutor in Syracuse against uh, Matteo Salvini, the, uh, who is the leader of the leg of the Prime in in, in Italy, the Prime Minister at the time. Now, Italy and Malta and Tunisia and possibly Libya, but certainly they, those three countries have an agreement with each other that they will not allow uh, ships which are carrying refugees which have been fished out of the sea after the, the boats went down. They will not be allowed to enter into the reports that they will have to that they keep them out. Now. This is, well, you can certainly say it's a deeply unfriendly act, and but it is in Italy, rather with large sections of the population, pretty large sections anyway, no, uh, it seems to be quite a popular one because there's a perception that Italy had become, if you like, this soft underbelly of, of Europe where people were coming in, uh, dispersing, and then were getting lost within the system, and there was no control over it. And that levels of illegal immigration were becoming unmanageable and that it was also it, there was also the sense that people were being illegally brought over and that there was in a sense the, the by taking the risk of drowning people were being rewarded with the chance of coming to Italy and you shouldn't be incentivizing such risky behavior now this had happened before Gary if you remember this was a big problem and there were thousands of people who were being lost, thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean. But what was it seems basically was happening that the Libyans, I think I'm right in saying, were being paid. Yes, we, we paid off the Libyans for years to uh, contain the refugee problem in a humane and dignified fashion. Which they absolutely did not do. Ah, well, we kept paying them to do we it, kept... so I assume they delivered close what? enough to the mark. They created what Michael. There were there were cultural and translation issues in the contracts, maybe. And there were there were concentration camps and pretty nasty ones that were set up. Well, yes, but no one wanted that. That just anyway happened. Uh, do you remember your man that won the Nobel Prize for Peace? That was Barack President Obama. Of, yeah, Barack Obama. Anyway, himself and wasn't he actively waging a number of wars when that happened? I think he, I, I was it. He he won it pretty quickly after he was elected. I can't remember. Anyway, he 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 certainly was an enthusiastic waver, wager of wars, and himself and his Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were responsible for bringing down Colonel Gaddafi and creating the absolute shitstorm which is Libya today. And we don't hear about this if 
if you read the Italian papers, you hear a lot more about it because Libya obviously is a lot closer and there are historical ties with Libya there. But Libya is an absolute shitstorm. And anyway, with the failure, uh, no, that's not to say, the Libyans are still doing a certain amount of Coast Guard work and there's a certain, certain amount of restrictions, but this is happening again and again. Already this month, there was one case where a ship went down. At least 45 people were drowned, including five children. There are reports of boats regularly going out and disappearing, bodies turning up. It's starting to look like we're going back to where we had been. Now, so anyway, there had been historically the the idea with the with the the laws of the sea. The laws of the sea. Some of them are written down, but an awful lot of them are custom and tradition. It's a bit like international law. Most of this is yet to be codified or yet to be written. But there there are certain sort of deep traditions. For example, when you come across people who are shipwrecked, people who have, uh, if a ship has gone down, even in war, that part of your, you have a duty, even if they're enemy combatants, you pick them up, you take them out of the water and you bring them into safety. So this act uh, of the Italian, the Maltese and the, and the Tunisian governments was perceived to be potentially breaking uh, the law of the sea by refusing to give aid. So anyway, the, the opinion of the court, first of all, back on the 21st of November, um, they dismissed charges of omission to perform official duty, official duties, the abuse of office charges against Minister Salvini and his cabinet secretary. Anyway, the, the decision that's come down today is they have found that there was no crime. And the decision is based on the fact that you have to, uh, the question is a thing called safe haven, the, and the responsibility of assigning a safe haven to ships. Who has that responsibility? And the court has decided that the responsibility for assigning safe haven to ships carrying refugees lies with what they call the first contact country. Now, this isn't always clear, but the, based on indications which are drawn from agreements and conventions, they've decided that the first contact country is the ship that has provided the rescue at whatever flag that's flying under. So, for example, there was a case recently where the ship was a Germ was flying a German flag, so it should turn to Germany for permission to dock. Now, all of this sounds very sort of abstract and esoteric, but what that means is that there had been a belief that what the, 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 the Italian position was not going to continue to be tenable and that they were going to have to, we we're going to see a return to what was happening before. I don't think Gibraltar can fit that many refugees. No, no, I don't think it can. No, because Gibraltar is not the same. Morocco is a far more organised place and it's, it's the Moroccan coast there. That's not to say that there aren't people coming, uh, coming and going across to Morocco. Actually, they don't go to Gibraltar because Gibraltar is actually, for, for, for reasons historical that you can understand, is far, has far more security and it's far better, shall we say, its borders are better defended than the, the coast of Spain around it. Is there, are, are there not some bizarrely large amount of ships registered to Gibraltar? Uh, yeah, I think there are quite a few in Gibraltar. Uh, there are certain places, Panama I know has a hell of a lot. Greece used to, but not anymore. Anyway, the reality is the Italian policy is going to continue. And we're going to be facing into a question. And that's all I'm, the reason I'm mentioning this at all, because it isn't going to be mentioned, but I think it's really important. We have a responsibility, at least as to some level, to what happened in Libya. The Americans, I believe, certainly have a responsibility for what happened in Libya. Now, what that 
what that effectively might mean. I am um, the the notion of attempting an intervention in Libya is one which terrifies me because let's face it, Gary, our the history of intervening in Arab and North African countries has not been brilliant. But we are facing again into a situation where we're looking at we're going to see hundreds and possibly thousands of people drowning in the Mediterranean. And we're going to have to find some kind of solution to this. And it's not going to be enough just to tell the give out to the Italians and say that the Lega and uh, Chiquistella are just a bunch of nasty racists and go off and feel good about ourselves because, you know, if we were there, we'd let them in. Well, we're not there and we're not letting them in anyway. By the way, we have some of the most restrictive refugee laws in the world. So I think that it, it's a story that needs to be, that people need to be aware of, we need to hear. And we need, to, something is going to have to be done about the sea because otherwise the Mediterranean is going to go back into the, a charnel, well, not a charnel house, but it's going to come back, it's going to turn again into the graves of, the water grave of a lot of very poor people. And there is, a, there is an element of responsibility that the whole of Europe has, and certainly the United States has. Anyway, that's my, my sermon for today. Uh, and I will leave it at that. Libya was it was a fascinating fuck up on a on an amazing scale, and and so many levels. I mean, do you remember the, the assassination of the ambassador? Ah, oh, I mean, also they could have just you know sent Condoleezza Rice to deal with Gaddafi. Yeah, he had some weird thing for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of people had a thing for Condi. Oh yeah, but have you, she's talked about this actually, and I think Gaddafi may have talked about it at all. That he just seemed to have this massive crush on her. <laughs> I don't know, look, there are worse women in the world to have a crush on than Condoleezza Rice. I think yeah. we all accept that. But I think you just sent her in. Would have just stopped. Instead, we have this broken, fractured country. Warlords and, and the ISIS. French slowly supplying weapons to certain sides. Because mm. there is no one the French won't sell weapons to. <laughs> well, you know, it's North Africa. They have a tradition. They have a number of traditions, most of which are war crimes now. <laughs> this is also true. So um, let's let's go on to, to America, Michael. But before we go there, we were talking about fact checkers the other day. Yeah. And you were having great fun with a fact check. So I found one today I thought you might like. Oh, go on. And this is from Politifat. Oh, yeah. That's the one I, was, I, I enjoyed. Yeah. And Politifat is... Um, it's connected to the School for Journalism and Democracy in, is it a Pointer University? The Pointer Institute. Pointer Institute, yeah. And so there was a claim that BLM protesters had burned down a black church. Right. And they rated this false. And this is what they say. A fire at a used car dealership in Kenosha burned the sign of a nearby church, but protesters didn't burn down a black church. And their argument was that fire was actually set beside the church and spread to the church. Right. But the intent had not been to burn the church. And the church minister said he didn't think the church was a target. And while the church is in the downtown area, and they say relatively close to what could be considered a black neighborhood, the minister said the congregation is uh, largely white. Well, there you go. But I, I love... I. I saw it. I just really enjoyed it. So sort of, did they burn down a church? No, they set fire to a uh, adjacent building and the fire spread. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's like, I, did we actually talk about the, the, the one that I found the other day, which I thought was just wonderful. I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast. It was uh, 
it was good your tires good your tires had said that they they, they what was acceptable or unacceptable kind of things to wear so you could wear clothing which supported black lives matter and you could wear clothing which supported lgbt rights and pride you could not wear uh, anything which said blue lives matter all lives matter maga hats or anything with the politic with a party political affiliation so donald trump said that maga hat they were banning maga hats and we shouldn't buy country tires and uh, was this was this true? They said, <laughs> they said it was it was it was false because the dress code and that's what it was. It was a dress code. Simply said that uh, you couldn't have you could have political things like MAGA things, but you could only have you could have clothes which addressed what was it? social justice and equity issues. Yes, but then it also depended on what <laughs> stance they took on that. No, no. Sorry, Gary. There's only one stance on social justice and equity. The very word equity, equity is only used by one political one political optic. People on the centre, people on, don't talk about equity issues. They talk about equality or egalitarianism. Equity is the prevail of the, of the left. Social justice and racial justice. So, basically, <laughs> but you couldn't have a mega hat. Or you couldn't have a Joe Biden hat, so it was mostly false. And I thought it was I mean, you really have to. This is reaching around. This is dislocating your shoulder to reach your arm to reach around to scratch your arse. <laughs> but that's fact checkers for you. And these fact checkers, like you, you, you were pointing out the other day, Gary, actually have a function. I mean, they go. They're used by Facebook, and they, Facebook will use them to de decide if things are promoted or not, or if they're false news, or if you flag them. If they're an approved fact checker, they actually will impact on what people get to read or not, and on, on how people perceive what they're reading. So the the line here is just fact check. Fact, whatever people thought fact checkers were going to be, they're not things that check facts, because very much we have discovered facts are in the eye of the beholder. So two two one small thing in America. Um, this is actually interesting. This this involves J.K. Rowling. This oh just J.K. Happened. All right. So J.K. Rowling had won uh, an RFK Human Rights Award. So that's the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights um, Award. And basically, they came out, and uh, one of the Kennedys, who is currently the president of the the organization, published a statement saying that um, J.K. Rowling was transphobic. And that she had, through her views and through her statements, harmed uh, trans people. Absolutely. And she's come out and said, look, I am a long-standing donor to LGBT charities. I am a supporter of trans people's rights to live free of persecution. Absolutely refute the accusation that I hate trans people or wish them ill. Or that standing up for the rights of women is wrong, discriminatory, or incites harm or violence to the, um, to the trans community. Yeah, well, she would say that, wouldn't she? So, and then she said, she wrote a very long piece, and she said, in solidarity with those who have contacted me, but who are struggling to make their voices heard, and because of the very serious conflict of views between myself and the organisation, I feel I have no option but to return the uh, Ripple of Hope award bestowed upon me last year. I'm deeply saddened they felt compelled to adopt this stance, but no award or honour, no matter my admiration for the person for whom it was named, means so much to me that I would forfeit the right to follow the dictates 
of my own conscience. Good woman. This is why you don't tend to start written fights with authors. Yes. Yeah. Now, we have said before that J.K. Rowling is a, is a lady with the guts of a billion dollars in the bank, so she's kind of hard to touch. But to be fair, that is, uh, that's true, but it doesn't take away from the courage that she has and that she shows in uh, what she does. And I think that, you know, it's not just about losing business, but about losing face and losing social status as Danny, which could have affected a lot, lot of people, but it hasn't affected her. And I think that that's uh, very admirable indeed. But what, what, I'm, what I find actually really interesting with the JK thing is, JK Rowling has kind of developed these thoughts on the transgender issue over time. And then she seems to have mostly just wanted to keep them to herself because they're not popular in her circle. And they're not the kind of views that go down well. Yeah. And then what we see is people unwilling to accept once they, you know, once it was heard that she had these views. Yes. People unwilling to accept that. And they just keep pushing her and pushing her. And every time it happens, she has to make a statement about it or she has to talk about it. And the problem is, is that it's very clear that J.K. Rowling does not hate transgender people. She just thinks there is a biological sex and that this is a more complicated matter than the existing conversation. And so they're forcing someone who's exceptionally well-spoken, exceptionally popular, and has effectively limitless resources to get involved in this. I think that you know, we're, we're seeing the beginnings of pushback on this issue, and from principally from feminists principally from traditional sort of second wave 1970s feminists and particularly a lot of lesbian activists and I don't think the trans activists had expected this they had just been used to being able to steamroller and the problem they're dealing with now is they're dealing with people who they can't dismiss just as you know alt-right fascist uh, haters homophobes transphobes whatever you know that's that's not where where these people are you did that, that interview you did with uh, the one of these the uh, leaders of the lgb group um oh yes the lgb alliance uh yeah. Bev jackson that i mean she comes across as a serious thoughtful reflective person she is a radical, she certainly, I'm sure Gary would not hold her uh, the same opi opinions that we would on a, on a lot of political issues. But you can't, you can't construe that her as some kind of hateful right wing figure. It's they are very, very balanced. One of the things I notice, I, I'm sure you follow their Twitter feed like I do. They are very careful not to amplify, not to ramp up emotion. They in constantly invite people into discussions. Listen, we know your opinion. We would really like, we'd be, we would very happy to have a discussion with you. If you would like to have a, a Zoom conversation, we would like, we will have, we happily facilitate that. They just invite people into discussions all the time because they're very confident of the discussions, their capacity to, to manage that. And I don't think a lot of the activists find that easy to deal with because that's not the kind of conversations they're used to having no i mean i i do remember just after 
well, maybe just before I interviewed Bev Jackson and a very kind of reasonable uh, person. I, as I said, we had a bit of a discussion before and after, and um, I would say we don't agree on anything uh, outside a very kind of narrow range of things, I think either economically or, or socially. But they were willing to sit down and have a perfectly reasonable conversation about what they believed in. Yeah. And uh, they had no hesitation to do so. But either just before or just after that, there were a load of trans activists turning up in J.K. Rowling's Twitter mentions. And she'd put out a book called The Ichabod. And it's, it's, I think it's the serialized book. And she'd asked children to uh, draw uh, the characters in it and to send them on to her and I, I think they were saying that they like put some of the best ones together uh, into the books or something like that but it was just like a nice competition for children right and there were you know, all kind of levels of skill there from absolute beginner and J.K. Rowling was, re- was getting these emails to her and she was putting them up and she was speaking really positively about the children and these transactions were turning up all below it just screaming abuse at her telling her to go fuck herself calling her a cunt some saying that she should kill herself oh the violence the and you just like you are under like a child's drong just screaming abuse at a woman you don't have to be a, a, some kind of conspiracy conspiracy theorist or unreformed or Freudian to, to look at a lot of these these uh, threads and see a deep misogyny in some of the comments and the the kind of the violence of the language and the sexual violence that's there is really really it's very uncomfortable to read it and what it must be like to be on the receiving end of it i don't know also to be in in that sort of left-wing position to be the old revolutionaries yeah to have been in a space where 10 years ago these would have been your friends yeah, yeah. I mean, but and everyone you know you would have had the reasonable positions you were the progressive and then you fast forward 10 years and your positions haven't changed but suddenly you don't have any friends anymore I, one thing think you are possibly explicitly evil yeah I, one thing is I, 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 I've always been I, I've I find curious that that's why about these kinds of issues is, and I've talked to some people about it is that they find themselves having to have conversations with people like us mm. and what and what does it feel like when this, you're getting support or you're getting uh, you're getting an audience you're getting you're getting a listening from people that you really look at and you think I don't know you know how and they say well you know what we're willing to talk to anybody, and for us, the important thing is that we're trying to, to 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 get the ideas out to disseminate it. But there, yes, it is just all a little bit weird. The people that we should be on the same platform with literally will not sit on the platform with us. They will not talk to us. They won't shake hands with us. They regard us as you said the word. It's they regard us as evil, not just wrong. Yeah, and there must be, I mean, it's much easier for us to say these things because these people dislike us already for so many other things. Sure. But they've also disliked us for so long Yeah. that it would be very, like, I have many left-wing friends. I have friends who are legitimate communists. But I have very few friends who are progressives mm. in the sense of what has now developed into the progressive movement because they don't like 
dissent. They don't like, for all that they talk about, uh, the need to to be you know, a diverse society. They seem to want a society in which everyone looks very different, but thinks exactly the same. In many ways, they want a, a multiracial society that is absolutely a stifling monoculture. Well, yeah, it's it, the old-fashioned liberal lefty types. You could, you knew where their positions were going to be on lots of stuff, and they were very predictable. So they would be anti-censorship, right? You should be able to say whatever you wanted, any word. There was no such thing as a word. Back in the day, these were the people who would have supported the likes of Lenny Bruce. These were the people who would have. Uh, gone into the courts to support um i can't remember the there was a famous magazine magazine comic in 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 the in the 60s uh, that was subject to a, an obscenity trial if you're on the left you're regarded no language must be free people must be able to s say what they want they use whatever words they want and that's the nature of freedom these people are very, very different. It's much more, I mean, not to be always going back to Herbert to Marcuse, but they don't see, they, don't, they fundamentally don't believe in the existence of things like rights. They, they see these things and everything is, a, is, is about, about power and power relations. And uh, we, all, we only exist in groups. We only exist in our identities. We don't exist as individual people. So you don't, you don't engage with someone but also they see it very much in these moral terms. We've seen this in, we've talked about before, when the polling is done, particularly in the United States, I don't know much has been done over here yet, but let's face it, we've seen that the cultural effect of the United States is still very powerful. The polarization, and we know that while this is true on the right as well, but it's, it's very true when you talk to people who decide themselves as progressives, that they are deep, that they don't want friends. They will not be friends with people who are not progressives. They would not like to live next door to somebody who was not progressive. They would not, they don't want, they would not like to see their children or their friends getting married to say a conservative. They, that's, they, it's a very black and white world, but also, and this is a thing I find really discomforting about them. Everything is political. No space can be allowed where people can engage and socialize and be together where you don't have to constantly pick at the scab of whatever the, it is that you're terribly agitated about today. I mean, which makes me kind of, you know, it's kind of a sad thing because the people who tend to be most interested in politics tend to be losers. <laughs> well, yeah. And I was clearly, I'm speaking from experience here. Yeah. But even I have many non-political things. I do. Because you can't let yourself get consumed by these things. They can be aggravating, they can be amusing, they can be stupid, and they can be important. But they can't be everything. They can't be the totality of your life. And for many of these people, they seem to be. And they seem to want it to be. And it just makes me think they're kind of pathetic. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean kind of pathetic figures when you actually look at them. Michael Oakeshott, who's the great English conservative philosopher of the 20th century, talks about that, that there are different ways of existing in the world, shall we say, different modes. And the political mode is only one part of that. 
and it should be restricted and politics should be done within that area but so for example when you go if you go to a you go to a a stadium and you to to watch a a, a, a game a football a game or hurling whatever it is you don't bring politics into that because this is a where a place where people can exist in civil society be friends together or be friendly enemies and exist in that moment and you don't taint it with with by bringing politics and the ga has been for for example been absolutely consistent on this you don't have political banners you don't have political protests you don't not inside the stadiums because if we if we if we do that then there will be no place where it would be possible for us to meet each other and recognize each other as human beings we will only ever see each other as combatants and opponents and enemies and if if you reach a state of society where every individual sees the other individual either as my group or the out group my me either one of us or the other that's going to be a that's not a that's not a a recipe for a happy society or for happy human beings it's going to be horribly corrosive but that seems to be the place where they go every, every there is no gap there is no space in life which is not to be filled with politics the the mantra going back some back to as it was from the 70s the personal is political that's the that's one of their fundamental foundational beliefs and that's for me that's a problem that's a big problem so just i was going to touch on the american issue but just because of the jk rowling thing actually talk about the australian issue first okay yeah so a new law has been passed in australia now important to point out this is not a federal law this is uh only covers the australian capital territory which is the i believe is the federal territory so it has uh canberra and then the townships around it so it's a relatively small part of australia in fact a very small part of australia but they have passed a new law now in passing that law, a former prime minister of the country has come out to basically say this is, you know, we now need a very quick review of what's happened. Because the law they passed is called the Sexuality and Gender Identity Conversion Practices Bill 2020. And I've had a look at it. Yeah. It's a shit show. I mean, it is an absolute shit show. The bill is designed to stop what is called conversion therapy. Conversion therapy in and of itself is actually a quite slippery definition as to what conversion therapy is. And that the problem when writing a bill to ban it is that, well, firstly, on a free speech grounds, you could say there's a defense for that and for people to make arguments they want. But also because, well, what is it? And Canberra came back with an answer and they said that Anything you do, anything you do, the purpose of which is to change a person's sexuality or gender identity is a conversion, uh, is considered to be a conversion practice. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's a ton of cutouts for this. So they say it's not going to be a conversion practice if it's to help a person undergoing a gender transition, assist a person who is currently undergoing a tra- gender transition, assist a person to express their gender identity or provide acceptance, support or understanding to a person or facilitate a person's coping skills, social support and identity exploration and development. 
And the examples they give are, uh, you know, diagnosing or assessing someone with gender dysphoria, supporting someone with gender dysphoria, giving someone gender affirming hormone treatment and gender transition services. So basically, you can help someone change their sexuality or gender identity if they are trans would basically be the way to do this if they want to become transgender. So the problem is, is that as it's written, uh, and now this only counts, this, this only counts on what they call protected persons. And a protected person is anyone who is legally a child in Australia, so under 18, or is developmentally impaired to the degree that their, their choices uh, fall under. Basically, they, they cannot make um, their own choices. So the problem that has been pointed out is that as the law is written, a parent could be brought to court because a child said they were a boy and the parent said, no, you're a girl, or vice versa. Right. Uh, a pastor could be brought to court, a teacher could be brought to court, or a therapist could be brought to court. Yeah. If a child comes to you and says, I think I might be, uh, I, I might be a different sex, or I might be a different gender, and a therapist does not act in the, does not affirm that, they could arguably be in contravention of this bill. And you might say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, the bill says that you can receive up to 12 months in prison or a fine of up to 24,000 Australian dollars. And there are some other options for um, civil proceedings before that, other than fines and, um, and jail time or uh, imprisonment. But they basically, in trying to stop conversion therapy, passed a law which, I mean, is so incredibly broad, I, I, I don't see how this is workable. I also, apparently they passed it in a great rush, which would explain how this happened. But it's, it's just a clusterfuck of a thing. You can't... It's effectively shut down an entire side of a conversation in a way that is only going to be harmful to children. Because if a child is presenting, most children with gender dysphoria over time, will, uh, it will cease. Sorry, not gender dysphoria, gender confusion. It will cease and they will, they will uh, re-ingrain their sense of gender as their born sex. So, but if this isn't the place, then you have to affirm that. If they tell you it is something and you say, no, it's not, and they tell anyone else about it, you could find yourself in jail for a year. How is yeah. that not going to hurt children? Yeah, well, I think there's two couple of things that just stand out here. That there's they're engaging for a start in 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 a, in in an old three card trick, which they do all the time, and the les the lesbian and gay alliance, the LGBT alliance, talks about this a lot. They conflate two things which are not connected at all, which is homosexuality and gender identity. They deliberately they they yoke these two things together because they know that people generally speaking, feel that in the past the way that gay people was treated was very bad. And the that that the vast most people, most gay people, most straight people think that your sexuality, your your attract the person to whom you're attracted is not something that people make a choice about, that it's either something you're born with or it's or it's something that happens very, very early in life anyway. That it's ultimately it's not a it's not a choice. It's something that you end up you're given, right? So that they they want to be positive, but they don't want to be perceived to be the kind of people that made it illegal, uh, it, like as it was here until nineteen ninety three or nineteen eighty seven, nineteen sixty seven in Britain, 
to for for gay and lesbian people to be together. So, but they yoke it in here with identity, and this. The, so I'm looking at quotes here. The this idea that homosexuality or your gen or your gender identity is caused by something which is not positive, whether it's trauma, abuse, blah blah. It means therefore that it can be fixed and needs to be fixed. It's uh, you should be able to suppress it because it's dis it is disordered or something. That's just pseudoscience. We are, and <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing here. The, where he, he talks that it affirms that LGBTQIA plus people are not disordered. And this is something that the the women in that alliance, not just the women in that alliance, are sick and tired of is this alphabet soup that this whole thing has become, where you, you've got the idea that your gender identity, people who have a gender identity or gender dysphoria are somehow in in the same, uh, shall we say, in the same situation, the same as people who are who are gay. This is a this is a, a, a three card trick. Now he also says, I don't know, I don't know Australia at all, but this strikes me as unlikely. In my opinion, it would be highly unlikely for a person, an LGBTQIA plus person, who has grown up in a faith community to have not come across some form of conversion practice, or at least have come across this ideology that underpins all conversion practices. Now, Australia may be a very different place, although my, my impression of people who have lived there, what I've read about it is that you know, Australia is a pretty secular country that historically, for a long time, religion has not been a, a very big factor in Australian life. Ireland, until pretty recently, was a country where there were a lot of people growing up in a faith community. And Gary, I, I don't know if I ever came across anybody who had who was connected to a conversion practice or conversion therapy or anything like it. Have you in Ireland? Is this something that you were aware of? No, I've heard other people make claim of it. But I've never actually come across it myself. And also, even in that, in the idea of conversion therapy, it is probably important to distinguish between coercive conversion therapy and non-coercive conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that either form works. Yeah. But, and this is a point that was made in the Australian case, there are people who legitimately want to attempt to change their gender identity or their sexuality. And if it's not coercive, is there a point in the state regulating? Now, obviously, if it's a young child or if it's someone who is, is coerced or forced into something, that absolutely shouldn't happen. But if it's something that someone wants to try themselves... Yeah. If we're going to go down the line of saying that a man can be a woman and... By some, there are processes whereby that can happen. So that one, that on the first of January you are a man, by the thirty-first of December you are a woman. Well, then I don't think it's actually that unreasonable to say that there may be a way that you can say one day I was gay and then that a year later I was straight. Well, I mean that's the thing. If if sexual attraction is sexual attraction to gender and gender is fluid and changeable, well then it would. I mean, then to the extent it means anything, one would assume that sexuality would also be fluid and changeable i mean that's not what the research suggests but fuck it we're well past the point of what the research suggests on anything here i'm sure you've seen people telling you that what what was the phrase that lesbians 
who exclude the possibility of being attracted to other lesbians with penises are transphobic. Yes, I, 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 have, I have read extensively on the idea of the feminine penis. Yeah. Um, I, I saw... That's a quote that's going to come back on me. I saw I a feel fantastic it. tweet the other day, and I thought that must be like a... It's a Titania McGrath kind of thing, but I I, I looked at the the the, uh, the account and it didn't seem to be, and it was something like uh, this obsession with genitals and being in some way connected to who you should be attract who you're attracted to is just so over. You really need to get with it. I saw one of the senior lawyers of the ACLU the other day say that uh, biological sex, the idea of biological sex as a concept, was only created as a weapon to use against the LGBTQ whatever communities. Oh. And you're like, it's a very old idea, firstly. It is. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a much older idea than the LGBT community is, for a start. I mean, Foucault, and I'm not saying we should let's go down that line Foucault would say the idea of homosexuality was invented sometime in the 18th or 19th century so the and it the idea that these things were done in order to attack a specific community when I mean when Wilde talked about homosexuality the, the, the love that dare not speak his name he was actually talking about reality that oh, there were for me, for many many people for very long periods of human history they did literally didn't know such a thing as homosexuality existed so why you'd set up these massive social s systems in order to oppose it i mean i think is a is a craft ebbing or have i think it was craft ebbing who was who did some of the earliest research in the 19th century on homosexuality and now havelock ellis and others i remember reading that he, he can't he when he, he was interviewing some uh i don't know what they're called were they inverts or inverts only, was that only applied to lesbians? But anyway, homosexuals. And there was a couple of the, in Germany. And it, this was a very common theme at the time where they these men believed that they were alone in the world. They thought that they were like unicorns. There was nobody else like them. So the, <laughs> the idea that all these great structures existed because society had to was targeting this is just such... His, a, historical nonsense. The fact is that for very long periods of history, at least in the Western world, because the attitudes to homosexuality are vastly different in different parts of the world at different times. Certainly in Europe, the last thousand years, there, homosexuality was basically invisible. And, the, and, and even to the extent that it, it, it was understood, or it was seen as being a, a choice that was led against nature, not and, and, and as kind of a form of high decadence, rather than being some kind of innate predisposition. But listen, as you say, we are way beyond the old, well, research doesn't show that, being a useful observation to make in this discussion. No. So I think, I mean, the Australian law is just interesting to see, because... Australia is just a weird country for these sort of things. Sometimes it goes really solidly on some stuff, and then it just swerves in parts of the country into really weird stuff. Like, a, let's say, oh, there's a there's a businessman we don't like. Let's create a law that singles him out. 
But don't you notice, Gary, that a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time when this stuff is done, it's done at high speed. It's done quickly. They get it in, and it's very often on the basis, which is not a bad basis to work on, that once a law is made, it's very hard to get politicians to unmake laws. Yes, I think the idea that, well, the argument's being raised by fairly serious people, and as I said, we've a former prime minister of the country involved now calling for an urgent review of the practices in some of the gender clinics. Uh, the idea that a parent could get arrested for, uh, that if their child comes to them and says, I, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, I want to change my gender, and you say, yeah, are you sure? Maybe that's, maybe that's not the right thing for you now, that you could be imprisoned. I think the voters wouldn't like that if given time to think about it. So you just ram it through. You're criminalising. You're, you're criminalising, in my opinion, people coming along and telling, you know, giving you a sort of ABC of human biology. But listen, it's, it's, it is already the, whatever the criminalisation. We know that in the United States, uh, the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, has made it their official policy. That if you're a psychiatrist, if you're a therapist dealing with somebody who is uh, presenting with uh, gender dysphoria or expresses the, uh, a transgender identity, and you do not affirm their choice, you do not affirm their identity, then you should not be their therapist. Yes, but that's that's a professional guideline. No, yeah, I, I I understand. I understand that, that we're, now we're we're, we're we're we we have moved on. We've now criminalized a whole other uh, uh, criminalized people for holding an opinion which the day before yesterday was regarded as being so bloody obvious. It was like saying rain is wet, but today it is now it, it, you're 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 leaving yourself open to a year a year in prison. I would also make this point, and this is, this is a very small wording that I think is, is quite noticeable. I'll, I'll read this to you, Michael. So, sexuality or gender identity conversion practice means a treatment or other practice, the purpose or purported purpose of which is to change a person's sexuality or gender identity. And that second clause there, that's important. So, it doesn't just say the purpose, because then they'd have to prove that you intended to uh, change someone's gender identity. To say the purported purpose is to say, or if it's true, or it appears to be true, it is alleged to be true. Right. So you could say something which clearly didn't have that purpose, but which another person rep misrepresents as having that purpose. Like, let's say that example, child comes to you and says, I think I... I, I, I want to be or I'm transgender or want to yeah. change my gender and you ask if that's the right thing if he's sure that that is the right thing to do at this time which seems a very reasonable question for a parent to ask a child mm -hmm. before they engage in a course of action that could lead to them becoming permanently sterilized yeah that would not have the purpose of changing a person's sexuality or gender identity but you would certainly find an activist who'd be very happy to argue that it did and by including that as, as a thing that can be breached, that it can be purported to be, it's basically what we're seeing with the hate speech laws, where we want the, well, the department, they haven't finalised it, but they're looking at removing intent. Yeah. It's effectively, if someone else sees this as what you are doing, that's what you're doing. That You've broken the law. doesn't matter. So I think that is, uh, 
that is a problem. It is, but it, 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 as you observed, this was this wasn't done with great with uh, great deliberation. And when you make laws quickly, you very often make bad laws. So there is just one thing just before we we close, Michael, because we've gone yeah. a little bit longer than I wanted to, uh, or well, we're longer than I feel the listener wants to. <laughs> um, so there was a joke on in in American circles, in the right wing American circles. That uh, the Babylon Bee did it, where they're like, Joe Biden may turn up to debate in full hazmat suit because of COVID-19. Also, his voice may sound different. And it was this <laughs> joke that Joe Biden is just not turning up to the debates because you know, they think his mind has gone so far that he can't get through the debates. Yeah. And the American press has been ferociously attacking them on this saying that this is just right-wing paranoia, that this is a ridiculous conspiracy theory, that it should be beneath these people. Cut to today. Oh, yeah. Nancy Pelosi comes out <laughs> and says that uh, she doesn't think there should be any debates and that Trump has not comported himself in a manner which shows any concern for truth and that she wouldn't want to legitimize a conversation with him nor a debate in terms of the presidency of the United States. Even though he is, in fact, president of the United States. Nancy Pelosi is apparently saying she wants to de-platform the president. Now, whether she's actually saying that or whether she's saying, can we find some reason not to put Joe on television? Well, that's also possible, I suppose. But it is hilarious. I mean, the idea that you're going to have an American election at this stage. Now, I was going to say, well, of course, the debates are debates are not new. I mean, but they're new on television. But Lincoln and Douglas, I mean, debates were famous. There have been debates have been part of uh, the the American political, the presidential elections for a very very long time, and the notion that now for some odd reason Trump is so beneath their contempt that they just oh, I wouldn't be bothered talking to them it, it's a bit like you know those those drunken fights you, 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 you see in pubs or in chippers where, and there's always somebody pulling at the fellow some, usually a girl saying oh leave him alone he's not worth it this is effectively what Nancy Pelosi's pretending to do is say oh Joe don't debate him he's not worth it come away we'll have our own debate <laughs> It is. Well, it's you know what it's it's it is chutzpah. It's 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 brass neck. If you can get away with saying something like that without actually breaking down and laughing, you have to admire them. I mean, it is an interesting turn of this of just will it would legitimize Donald Trump. You actually, it's it's basically the playbook you see whenever anyone in Europe doesn't want to debate anyone on the right. So, well, by by debating them, we're legitimizing their views. Yeah. It's a bit of a risky proposition, though, because if you do this and voters don't like it, I mean, the in, like when you look at the polls, overall, Biden is performing <coughs> better than Clinton. Absolutely. But when you look at the swing states, yes, it's closer in most of them. The only one where he's outdoing Clinton is Florida. Yes. Now, and that's... you start sort of going, hmm, popular vote, though. Yeah, he's he's out doing Clinton in Florida. No, he's he, he's three three and a half on Florida. She was two point three or something. 
it's bad news for Trump that he's doing better than her in Florida. It's not great for Biden that he's he'd like to be further ahead in Florida. Trump, you would you imagine, can't win without Florida. But yeah, I mean, we we saw, for example, the polls now, one poll in the middle of all this. What what can it mean? But we saw uh, over the space of a week, before and after the conflagration in Kenosha in Wisconsin, you saw Biden's lead go down from six and a half down to three. That's not good news. The effect that uh, the civil disturbances, the protests, the riots, whatever you want to call them, are having on middle America, are having on the swing voters, well, we don't know yet. But it's not unreasonable to speculate that it certainly could be good news for Trump. And the idea that there's, there is, I mean, I would not always say, but if you unpack it, there's a certain arrogance in saying something like this, even if it is just election time rhetoric. There's a certain arrogance to say, we're not going to debate him. When really, you don't get to make that, you don't get to make that call. Joe Biden doesn't get to make that call. The American people ha have the expectation that they're going to see the two candidates go up against each other and debate the issues. And it's not really up to anybody else to decide whether or not that's going to happen. Well, turns out there are there is a lot of options there. Now, I mean, it may come to nothing. Maybe the debates will go ahead. And, I mean, if the Democrats are smart, they could be playing this up. And Biden is maybe not 100% mentally there, but more than the Republicans are making him out to be. Well, yeah. And he just needs to perform adequately. And Listen. the expectations will be so low. But I don't know if the Democrats have that sort of planning capability considering they tend to, they seem to be quite scattered at the minute if you have if you have someone that you're a little bit worried about in the debate well you absolutely it's 101 you lower expectations no it see if i were a republican if i were on the right in the middle state i would shut the hell up about biden and sleepy joe and all that stuff because you're just feeding into this because he looked fine. No, okay, it was dist done with distance and all that, but he looked fine giving the speech. He he had the last couple of times I've seen him doing appearances, he has he has looked fine to me. If he has an issue, we I don't know. Maybe it maybe it's like Hillary in the cough all over again. Maybe it's not. But the last thing you want to do is to lower the bar so much on your side that if he turns up and he doesn't fall over his shoelaces he gets a win so the, the republicans shouldn't be working with the democrats to lower expectations about biden they should be saying oh he's a politician for 40 years he's 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 a skillful debater he's a he's won x number of elections we don't underestimate the, him at um, all the log cabin republicans actually came out with an attack ad on biden there comparing and it was an interesting ad because i was looking at it and going okay because this won't play well with some of the evangelicals and some of the more culturally conservative people in trump's camp but it's basically the log cabin republicans and all they did was compare joe biden's record on gay rights with that of donald trump yes and make the point that donald trump is the first president in american history who has come into office believing that gay marriage should be a thing yes 
and just playing clips of Joe Biden talking about homosexuals and saying that they, uh, he would consider that homosexuals shouldn't be given security clearance because, yeah, but the homosexuality is a security risk. Yeah. Which reminded me of the, and I'll, I'll put this in the bottom of the podcast for people, the, uh, I think it's, it's either from Brass Eye or the Day to Day, where they uh, do an investigation of someone who was fired from the Navy for being gay, and they ask the commander why he did it, and he responds by saying that homosexuals attract radar. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But no, so we will see what happens with that. America continues its long, graceful slide into imperial breakup. God help us all. Indeed. Um, I suppose we'll be back on Sunday, unless we're barring accidents. Barring accidents are an overly raucous uh, dinner party. Yes, you never know. (laughs) It may turn into a Monday show. We shall see. But it will happen, whatever. There There will be a show sometime. We will do a Sunday. There will be a miscellany, a wrap-up of the week. But until then, uh, I suppose, mind yourselves, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. All the best.